so yeah, the, read, the reading is from Matthew 28, 1 to 15. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Thanks, Kate. That was a lovely reading. Well, welcome everyone. I'd like to add my welcome. Uh, my name's Stuart, and um, I've got the great privilege this morning to open up Matthew 28 to us so that we can reflect on and consider the great surprise that the two Marys experienced on the first Resurrection Sunday. Well, um, I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes surprises. There's two kinds of people, I think. There's people who like surprises, and there's people who don't like surprises. Hands up if you're a person who likes surprises. Hands, oh, okay, that's not as many as I thought. Hands up really high if you really like surprises of that group. Some people, oh, I love a good surprise. How about people who don't like surprises? Okay, that's not everyone. How about who don't care if they get a surprise or not? Okay, yeah. There's some of you who don't care enough to not even bother putting your hand up at all. Like, that's, that's, um, that's also another category. Well, it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's um, a different thing for different people. Some people like surprises, some people don't. But no matter whether you like them or not, we all experience surprises in life. Now, um, some of you might know that Louise and I have just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Um, yeah, it's very fun. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And um, we uh, rocked on down to Tasmania and we went where we went on our honeymoon. It was really lovely. We have been on holiday for a week. But while we were um, away, uh, just before we went away, actually, Lou said... Um, do you know what would be nice to you? Why don't we have a party at our place with just family and just to see get a few small, you know, small group of friends because COVID from um, the people who came to our wedding, and um, maybe we just have a you know something in our front yard. And I thought, oh, that's nice. So we came home from Tasmania on Thursday night. Next day, Friday, right? Good Friday. We went to church. That was heaps good. Who went to church on Friday? Who, who found that good? Yeah, it was sick. A few more hands went up. I think people are participating more and more as the sermon goes on, that's good. And um, can everyone hear me all right up the back? Because there's less hands up the back than up the front. Oh, that's good. Okay, at least the voice is carrying. That's good. Anyway, so we come home from Tasmania. We got the last flight in, so I was a bit dusty in the morning because it was like 11.30 that we got in. But then um, went to church. Then we set up, had a lovely picnic, a lovely, or a lovely you know, party in our front yard. 
Anyway, near the end of the party, my son Ethan goes, oh, why don't we go and get a, a, a photo up on the driveway? So we went, oh, yeah, right, that sounds like a good idea. So we all trek up to the driveway and we all just stand around and a tree had fallen over the day before, so it was a bit hard to walk around, but anyway, we got around the tree. And we're standing there on the driveway, and then Ethan goes, oh, why don't we get your bridal party up the front for a photo? So our two bridesmaids, Christine and Carolyn, and one of my groomsmen and my brother Greg were there, so Elijah stood in for the other groomsmen who wasn't there, and we are going to have a photo. And then I turned around and went, where's Lou? Can't have a, you know, wedding photo thing without Lou. Anyway, to my surprise, up the pathway comes my lovely wife dressed in her wedding dress from 30 years ago that she kept, and it still fits her. How good is that? Give her a round of applause. She also looks equally stunning in orange vests as well, so she's up the back there if you don't know my wife, Lou. Anyway, she comes up in the wedding dress. I'm like, oh, what a lovely surprise. Isn't that lovely? You're going to get a photo with Lou in a wedding dress. And Ethan got a little jacket for me anyway. But that wasn't a surprise. I turn around, and here's this shady-looking dude coming out of the bushes wearing a white jumpsuit and Elvis glasses, and it's Elvis! Now, to set the scene, I've been banging on for years to Lou. Why did we get married in, you know, in a traditional way? Why didn't we go to Vegas and get married by Elvis? We should have eloped and gone to Vegas. So I've been banging on about that for 30 years. And guess what? Lou hasn't forgotten. And she gets Elvis and a full surprise. The only people who knew were our two flower girls who are now 40. And, and my son Ethan. So everyone's surprised. Here's Elvis rocking up in his white jumpsuit. And he comes down and he goes, well, hello there. I'm Elvis. And he gets out this lay and he puts a lay on me and Lou and I, I'm just it's like being in the middle of a Monty Python sketch. It was hilarious. It was even funnier than our first wedding, which was real fun. But anyway, we, we renewed our vows and the best bit of it was when Elvis turned around and left. And before he left, he said, thank you very much. And then I said, Elvis has left the building. Now, what has that got to do with Easter? Not very much, but I just want to tell the story. <laughs> now, it does have a little bit to do because in the passage we see in front of us today, from Matthew 28, Mary and Mary get the biggest surprise of their life. If I thought it was surprising to see Elvis, and by the way, the Elvis was, you know, the late 70s Elvis, the best one, you know, with the white jumpsuit, with, you know, the big gold glasses, he had the whole thing on, right? And even the chonky bottle of champagne he gave me, it was just all there, right? The whole package. And when he turned around, he even had these little gold wings on his back because Elvis is no longer with us. If you're younger and you don't know who Elvis is, ask mum and dad later. <laughs> but anyway, when Mary and Mary go to the tomb that first Sunday, nothing could be further from a nice party in a front yard. The two Marys are so brave their Lord Jesus has just been executed two days ago in the most hideous way you could imagine. Only the lowest of the low were crucified in the times of Jesus. Jesus was arrested and put up on trumped up charges even though he had done nothing wrong. He allowed evil men to arrest him and then, and then humiliate him, to spit on him, to scourge him. And then he allowed them to force him to carry his cross to Golgotha outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And as they nailed him to that cross and lifted him up, he was the object of scorn and derision. And everyone from Jerusalem had come out of the city to look at Jesus. They had nailed a sign above his head that says, here is the king of the Jews. And that was to scoff at him and to, to laugh at him. And there in agony, Jesus hung on the cross. Mary and Mary were there. They were brave enough to be there when even 
the disciples had run and hidden away. Even Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle, had stayed away and even denied that he knew Jesus so that he might not get arrested and put through the same punishment himself. Yet the two Marys are there with John as Jesus turns to John and says to his mother, he says, Mary, this is your son. And he says, well, obviously he's not even able to point. He says to John, John, this is your mother. In other words, John, can you look after my mother? And she was there looking after him. Can you imagine her heartbreak as she stood there watching the whole of Jerusalem laughing at the awful death of her son? Despite the fact that all Jesus had ever done was being a wonderful teacher, a wonderful healer, a, a, a miracle worker and, and someone that was just absolutely delightful. Jesus was not just a human being like us. He claimed himself that he was fully God, come to be with us, come to rescue us from our troubles. And here he was in trouble himself. It would have been so confusing and confronting for his mother to stand there that day and see the ignominy of that situation. The Saturday must have been unbearable. Can you imagine after they buried Jesus in that tomb on the Friday night, the day after, just the incredible oppressive grief that must have settled on the Christian, the early Christian community. And yet the women come the next day on Sunday to serve Jesus, even though they think that he is still dead. And this is where the surprise takes place. Nothing could be further from my enjoyable party I was having on Friday afternoon. It was the darkest of darkest nights. And as the dawn dawned, the most amazing surprise occurred because it was in such sharp contrast to the ignominy of the last couple of days. Let's take it up again from chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So basically you get the situation where the two Marys go down to the tomb and there's a Roman guard or a, 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 you know, some soldiers posted around the tomb. Now you might be asking yourself, why would you put a guard on a tomb of a criminal? You know, in those days, they actually, it was quite rare to actually put a crucified person in a grave. The only reason Jesus was in a grave is a rich man who was following him asked for his body to be put in his own grave. But normally a, a poor criminal would be just thrown in the pit and, and forgotten about. Why did they put a guard on the tomb? Because they knew that the Christian church was listening to the teaching of Jesus who, who claimed that he would be able to even conquer death. And so that no one would go and steal the body they put a guard around the tomb so that no one could steal the body and then claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead. What is it going to take to get guards to leave their post? Now, while we're in uh, Port Arthur, I don't know if you've been to Tasmania, but it's actually quite a confronting place. It's a beautiful place, but Port Arthur is very confronting because it's one of the earliest penal settlements in um, Australian history, and that's where they put the worst of the worst criminals. And I was so struck when we went on Thursday, when we went to Port Arthur, at the size of the place, the size of the walls, the size of the cells, the iron bars that were thicker than they needed to be. The whole thing was not only meant to incarcerate men in this case, but it was meant to take away any hope of a future. The whole architecture of the place screamed out the end. 
And if there was not a better parallel between that and that night when the women went down to that grave, there were these soldiers around a big stone tomb with a big stone rolled across the front. There was no intention for that to be disturbed. It was the end, full stop, on the story of Jesus. That was the intention. What is it going to take to remove the stone and to remove the guards from that situation? Heaven itself is the answer. The only thing that could happen to change that situation was a supernatural intervention. That God himself was in control of Friday, Saturday and Sunday is in no doubt. Jesus was not a victim like the men who were incarcerated in Port Arthur down in Tasmania. He allowed himself to be incarcerated and then executed for us. Because when he died on the cross, he died in our place for the wrongdoing we have done. He knows that sin needs to be paid for. And so God himself knows that we're not capable of doing anything about the wrong that we've done. We can't make up for even the smallest lie that we've told. And so Jesus, fully man, fully God, comes and dies in our place so that we might be put right with God. The only barrier between us and God is not a big stone or a guard. That's easy for God to get rid of. It's our own sin, something we can't get rid of. I can't take back anything that I've done wrong, and yet I know my Heavenly Father, He is perfect. I can't have any hope of eternal life with Him while I'm still, as the Bible describes, dead in my sin. Even though I'm alive, I'm spiritually dead. And so Jesus died so that He could bring me and you back to life again. So he takes the punishment that we deserve so that we might not have to be punished for our own sin. And he dies on the cross, not for himself, but for us. See, he's in control on Friday and he's in control on Saturday. And in the dark night, as the dawn is breaking, God is in control. And we see the angels from heaven come and the angels from heaven scare those soldiers away. The soldiers of God scare the soldiers of human beings away from that tomb. Get away. You have no right to be here. Be gone. You've done your work. What is finished is what you've attempted to do by expunging Jesus' memory. But God is not finished. Remember when Jesus said on the cross it is finished, he meant that it is finished. In other words, that I have paid for your sin and it's all done. And these angels come down like lightning and their, their clothes were white as snow. You know, the funny thing about angels in the Bible is, you know, sometimes in our modern culture we have this idea of these angelic you know, beings with, with big white dresses on with big wings, like Elvis who came down my driveway. Just a bit more spectacular maybe, but pretty similar. Maybe not with the glasses. But, you know, every time someone sees an angel in the Bible, when, when an angel reveals themselves to people, they are terrified all the time. <laughs> terrified by their holiness and their beauty and their splendour and their power. And the guards standing there with their terrifying weapons, fall as if they are dead in the presence of this angel. It's like there's an earthquake. They shine like snow. If you want another example of this kind of uh, vision that, that, that people have seen before this event, you could go back to places uh, like, um, like Daniel, where Daniel sees the Son of Man sitting on his throne as, as if he's in uh, with, you know, it's like white as snow he's described as. And here, the angels... His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were like that as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, 
however, do not be afraid. See the interesting thing there? For those men who had no faith, who had tried to end Jesus, their hope was lost. But the angel says, I've come to take you in the reverse direction, out of hopelessness into hope. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said. Now when the angels talk about that, we remember Matthew 16, 21, because it says this. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Every now and again, I meet people who say, oh, Jesus was just a good teacher. He just used to be a good person. There's many people who aren't Christians who believe Jesus lived and taught really good things. But one of the things Jesus taught, think about this this morning, one of the things that Jesus taught was that he would be crucified and he'd come alive again. So if you are like me thinking that Jesus is a good teacher, you need to understand the scope of his whole teaching. He's not just a moral philosopher. He actually came to teach that he is God and that he has power over death. And the really important thing about this morning is that we're not just sitting in a lovely sunny park enjoying the water and the view today. We are enjoying the view of eternity that stretches out in front of us because of the name of Jesus Christ. Because the same God who created that river behind me and created us for relationship with himself has died in our place so that we might not be separated from him, but that we might actually be able to be gathered back to him despite the fact that we've rebelled against him by the way we live. And he died for us and he didn't leave anything. The angel says, come and see the place where he lay and then quickly tell the disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. The really cool thing about that message from the angel is Jesus himself said in Matthew 26, 32, that after I rise from the dead, do you know what I'll do? I will go to Galilee after I rise from the dead. When you go on holidays, you pack your bags, you plan your accommodation because you know pretty pretty well that you're going to get on a plane that's going to get you or you're going to get in a car that's going to get you to where you're going to go you make preparations jesus was so confident that he would rise from the dead that he had told them exactly where he was going to meet up with them after he rose from the dead it's just wonderful isn't it isn't it a surprise even to those of us who've heard this story so many times isn't it a surprise how in control jesus is Despite the fact that it looked like everything was out of control and it was the darkest weekend that the disciples had ever had, that Sunday morning was bright and new. And then Jesus meets them. The women hurry to the tomb in verse 8 and they're filled with joy and they run after they've seen and they run to tell the disciples already. They're going to go tell the disciples who weren't there. Suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. I like two things about that. First of all, they don't just hear from an angel that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus appears to them and he comes to them. And I love the fact that Jesus had already taught one of those beautiful things that he used to teach was he said, I'm like a good shepherd. If one of my sheep gets lost, I'll go looking for that sheep until I find them. And it's just as if Mary and Mary are two lost sheep in the darkness and Jesus comes to them. Isn't it lovely that they didn't have to go looking for him? He came to them. It is so beautiful. They had come to serve him and yet he came and found them and served them. And then the other thing I love about that is he says, 
go tell my brothers that I go to Galilee. I've already said Jesus is God, and yet he calls the disciples his brothers. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, we read this. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, I am here and the children that God has given me. Just as Jesus appeared to Mary and Mary that morning, he also comes looking for us too. And just as he called the disciples brothers, such a beautiful, intimate term, even to those who run away from him scared, he still called them brothers. He calls us brothers and sisters today. That all of us who put our faith in Jesus can be saved from all the wrongdoing that we've done. And all we simply need to do is recognise his divinity and the fact that he died on the cross for me. That if we are humble enough to admit that Jesus paid for my stuff, the stuff that I'd done wrong, the wonderful surprise that we have, while maybe not as spectacular as what Mary and Mary saw that first Easter morning, but the spectacular reality is that just like Jesus said this is the beginning of the new life for them, despite what people have done. So he comes into our darkness and he gives us an opportunity for a new beginning as well. I know many faces here today and some I don't know yet, so I'd love to see you and meet you afterwards. There's many people here I know are Christians, people of faith, who've asked Jesus to forgive their sins and trust in his death and resurrection so that your sins and my sins might be paid for and our future might be assured in heaven. But can I encourage you this Easter morning? You might be surprised that this story makes sense to you this morning for the first time. It might not. It might be something you still want to work out. But if you're sitting here today and going, you know what? It's a simple idea that Jesus paid for my sin and my wrongdoing so that if I trust in his death on the cross that it can pay for my sin, that I can be forgiven by God and I get to go to be in heaven forever and I can have a hope that stretches out into eternity. If you want to make that decision this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Just in the quietness of your own heart now, on the riverbank here in this beautiful setting, you might want to just spend a moment and thank Jesus that he died on the cross for you and ask him to forgive you for your sins because of what he's done for you. Because the Bible says that when we do that, God takes our sin and he throws it as far away as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. The power of God that was present that day is still present today and powerful enough for you and me as well. That Jesus can actually rise from the dead means that we too can rise from the dead even though we die. And if that is a promise you'd like to take hold of today, I'd love to invite you to do that now as I pray. If you want to join with me in this prayer and make this your own, you just simply need to say Amen at the end. Amen is the ancient Christian word that just means I agree. So we go here to you as I pray. Dear God, we thank you for that morning where Mary and Mary came to that tomb and you were risen. Thank you, Father, that you are still uh, looking for us to this day, that Jesus is still alive and that he promises that when two or three people are together in his name, he's there in the midst of us. Today, Lord God, we want to speak to you and say we're sorry for our sin. Please forgive us. Thank you that Jesus died in our place on the cross and thank you that Jesus rose from the dead so that we too might rise from the dead. Today, I want to thank you for your gift of eternal life to me. 
Please give me your Holy Spirit so that I might live for you instead of myself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.